This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for being with us on another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us for new episodes every Thursday or just tap subscribe to ensure that you get automatic updates to your podcast feed. This week we're talking about one of the oldest and most important Neolithic sites in Britain, which has recently come into the care of English heritage. Although in reality it's more than just one site. Thornborough Henges comprise three circular earthworks that dot the landscape about seven miles north of the cathedral city of Ripon in North Yorkshire. So what's the history of these henges? What's their significance? And how is their story going to be told to future visitors? Well, to answer all those questions about Thornborough Henges and many more, we have two guests joining us today, former senior properties historian Dr Susan Greeney and senior interpretation manager Joe Savage. To begin with, could we describe how these circular earthworks make up Thornborough Henges? How, how are they laid out in the landscape? So the three Thornborough Henges are almost identical to each other. And they're laid out only about 500 metres or so apart on a kind of northwest to southeast axis or strung out in a nearly straight line. And each one has got two opposing entrances along that same line. So the entrances also face sort of northwest and southeast. So that suggests that perhaps there are connections between the three henges and that they were probably all built and laid out at the same time. OK. And when you say that they're... Uh... You can, can you walk into them? Is it a kind of like a mound? Or? The henges are circular earthwork enclosures, so a bank surrounded by an outer ditch and with a much larger inner ditch. So you can walk into the middle of the henges. They are a flat plateau. And at the, in the present day, the ditches are pretty much filled in. We only know about them through surveys and excavations. So today they feel like kind of amphitheatres, really, when you walk into them. Ah, right. They're so large in diameter that they're probably best viewed from the air in terms of understanding the shape and, and, and their alignment. But actually, one of the incredible things about them is that they sit within this natural bowl on a, on a plateau and they're surrounded by hills on all sides. So you really get a sense of not just being enclosed within the henge, as, as Susan has described, but being enclosed within this wider landscape, almost cradled within this wider landscape. So, Susan, we've sort of slightly described what a henge is. Is there anything else that you would add to the description? So a henge is one of those technical archaeological terms that we apply to actually a whole range of circular earthwork enclosures. And people like to get a bit nerdy about henges and say, oh, it's not technically a henge if it doesn't have a particular set of characteristics. So technically a henge is a monument, usually roughly circular, an enclosure, an earthwork enclosure that has a bank inside the ditch. But not all henges actually conform to that. And perhaps the most famous henge of all, Stonehenge, doesn't conform to that. And in fact, neither do the Thornborough henges. So they have a bank, a large bank surrounding a kind of circular area. And they have an internal large ditch, but they also have a small and rather irregular outer ditch as well. So these are kind of concentric monuments, multiple kind of barriers and markers separating a kind of internal circular world from the outside world. We've talked about the size of them, about 500 metres apart, aren't they? But what about the actual circular circumference of them? Each one is about 175 metres in diameter from sort of bank to bank. But if you include the outer 
ditch as well, then they're about 250 metres or so across. So these are really large spaces. And originally the banks would have stood perhaps four or five metres high above ground level. And that's kind of tricky to see today, although the northernmost henge is today covered in woodland. And because that means the site has not been ploughed in recent times, if not if at all, the earthworks there actually survive really, really well. And so the banks and the ditches there are really high and deep, and you can get a much better impression of how the earthworks once looked in the other two henges as well. The southern and the central henges have suffered a little bit from plough damage and from rabbit burrowing and later activity. So what you see today is a kind of denuded version of what, how they used to appear. Yes, it's really interesting that um, one of them actually has woodland there. Do we know how old that woodland is? I don't know that we do. I think it's fairly ancient. It looks as if the Henge earthworks have never been ploughed, which would suggest it's kind of pre-enclosure and pre-kind of modern agriculture and field systems. So the woodland has been there a very, very long time. From my memory, you might be able to recall, Joe, last time I was there, I think there were lots of lovely bluebells, which is always a sign of ancient woodland. So I think a very long-lived woodland there. Yes, it feels really mature, but it's not actually open to the public as a Henge because the Northern Henge is privately owned. But we will be hopefully introducing a path around the um, outside of the Northern Henge to allow people to kind of get an idea of the scale of it. But um, as well as these three henges, there are some other monuments at the site, aren't there? There's this one or two Cursus monuments. Susan, can you tell us what these are? Yeah, so the three henges were built in a landscape that had existing monuments in it. And in fact, the central henge was laid out really carefully and deliberately over what we call a cursus monument. And this is a very long rectangular enclosure that runs kind of perpendicular to the line of the three henges. And it extends over about three quarters of a mile. And it's about 44 metres wide. And it consists of of a bank and a ditch surrounding this huge rectangular area. So this is a monument called a cursus. And we don't have a, an exact date for this particular one, but they're generally built in the early Neolithic period, around about 3500 BC, probably. So much earlier than the henge that was then laid out over the top of it. And we don't know what these cursus monuments were for. There are over 300 of them in Britain and Ireland. They seem to be fairly empty in terms of how they're used as spaces. Some people have suggested that they are monumentalising routeways. So they're kind of formalising long spaces in the landscape which were important or sacred routeways. Other people have suggested that perhaps they are much more like barriers, spaces that you would cross and perhaps conduct particular ceremonies, perhaps corral your cattle. It's even been suggested that these were kind of race courses. So the word cursus actually comes from William Stukeley, who was an early archaeologist who was surveying them and, and identified the first one near Stonehenge. And he called it a cursus because he thought it looked like a Roman chariot racing circus or cursus. So that's where the name comes from. But in fact, a couple of sites, they've found very small evidence, but something which suggests that these spaces were being used for sort of sports-like activities. So some arrowheads, for example, embedded in the bank at one end of these long enclosures as if people are doing archery in these spaces. So perhaps these were places where people did have races and perhaps some kind of coming of age ceremony or activities that were needed in, in long rectangular spaces. But the simple answer is we, we don't actually know what these are. So there's one of those that is definitely existing. There's another potentially possible one to the north of the site next to the Northern Henge, which has only been identified as a crop mark on aerial survey. So we're not 
100% sure it is a cursus, but it, it looks a bit like one. And so those are earlier monuments and the, the central henge is laid out very deliberately and very carefully so that the entrance, the southern entrance to the central henge is directly over the old ditch of the earlier cursus. So they're obviously laid out with reference to this earlier monument. And then in the wider area, there are also lots of monuments that are contemporary with or come after the henges. So we've got lots of round barrows and some enclosures and lots of post alignments, double and single post alignments, which seem to date from the Bronze Age. That's fascinating. Uh, how long are the cursuses? The one that is running across the middle of the site is about three quarters of a mile long. The one to the north is shorter, but the only part that's been identified is, is one terminal, one end of the cursus. So we don't know quite if that is a cursus, how, how long it stretches for. And if you're walking over one, would you just sort of go down a slight dip and then sort of climb out again? These are completely flat nowadays. There's only a couple of cursus monuments in the country, actually, where the earthworks still survive. They're relatively shallow ditches, metre or so originally, so that they don't actually, you know, only takes one plough to get rid of them. So unfortunately, the ones at Thornborough are not visible above ground. And in fact, some substantial sections of them have been quarried away by historic quarrying events. Mm. Okay, very interesting. You've obviously talked about some of the detail in the landscape. Um, I understand there's also a river nearby, some other features that you could talk yeah, about? Yeah, so the River Ure is nearby and it's very close to the Henges. And the River Ure actually flows, sort of roughly runs east-west across the country. It's running down through Wensleydale across to where it meets the River Ouse just near York. And it's probably a very crucial routeway across that part of the landscape in prehistory. And there's a number of monuments that seem to be built not far from this particular river, but also close to other rivers in the area, particularly near crossing points. So the Thornborough Henges actually sit within a wider cluster of other henge monuments and enclosures that date from a similar period, all of which seem to be located close to or near crossing points of rivers. Right. And these are Catterick monuments, Devil's Arrows, is that right? Yes, that's right. So we've got the three henges and the cursus and the little what we call a monument complex, really, at Thornborough. But then that's part of a, a larger cluster of monuments that are found a, along a sort of seven mile or so stretch of the river and sort of runs parallel with the modern A1 road. So there are similar henges to the three at Thornborough, which, again, this sort of very similar identical layout and, and size. There are henges at Nunwick and Hutton Moor and Canabarn. And there are lots of further round barrows and pit alignments and enclosures and things. And at the southern end of that group is some standing stones, quite famous standing stones called the Devil's Arrows, very distinctive looking kind of rugged, large standing stones. So they, they're all part of a kind of wider cluster. And then, yeah, there's, there's actually a, a large cluster of monuments even further afield than that. So running for about 60 kilometres or so, kind of north-south from kind of roughly near Leeds right up to kind of Catterick in the north where there are lots of these similar henges and numerous other monuments. And at Catterick, some recent excavations have uncovered a really large, what we call a palisaded enclosure, which is a large area surrounded by great big timber posts. So this is obviously, this north-south stretch crossing all of these rivers was obviously a really crucial place in prehistory as a routeway, perhaps moving north-south, but also perhaps as a gathering place for people to come to. Yes, because we should probably say that this is called the Stonehenge of the North, isn't it? Thornborough Henges. Yes, I've heard that said. I always really don't like when people compare other monuments to the Stonehenge of the of the something. It happens a lot to Arbor Low, which is another of our sites in the Peak District. These sites are so different to Stonehenge. They are a similar date. And yes, they're just as impressive. But really, 
I always think comparing to Stonehenge means that we do these places down because they've got their own unique qualities and their own interesting landscapes. And they are as important and unique in themselves, really, without needing to compare them somewhere else. Mm. I guess one similarity, Susan, is that they, like Stonehenge, Thornborough, from relatively kind of humble origins, developed into an extraordinary complex of monuments and routeways and pilgrimage routes, perhaps, over hundreds, thousands of years. Neither of them were just built as sort of massive monuments. They kind of grew through this constant development of the spaces to form really quite an extraordinary landscape of special places. Yeah, that's right. And we call these places monument complexes because they are kind of places where people come back to time and time again over what can be kind of a couple of thousand years to build monuments, to conduct rituals, to alter monuments, to gather for periods of time. And there are lots of monument complexes all over Britain and Ireland. And Thornborough is a really good example of them. And Stonehenge is another really good example. But there are lots and lots of other ones as well. Yes. There's so much more to tell, really, than just three mere dots in the landscape, isn't there? It's a wider, complex tapestry to explain and to sort of unravel. Uh, there's so much mystery involved with the whole thing. If you look at the central henge, which, is, as Susan said, has been damaged through agriculture and, and kind of multiple different uses of, of that space, but there are still walls that are, are standing almost up to four metres high. So you can, even in that central henge, if you, if you kind of mentally sketch the uh, perimeter around you, you can imagine what it would have felt like to be enclosed in that space. And actually, apart from these kind of bright white gypsum walls that would have surrounded you, you would have just have a view of the sky. And so there's quite an interesting kind of thought experiment about what that would have felt like and the purposes of, of people wanting to enclose themselves in those really high walls. We don't know the answer, but you really get a sense that there was some significance to it if you stand there. There's a lot of mystery already to start uncovering, isn't there? And for you as interpretation manager, Joe, to sort of try and work out a way to tell this story to future visitors. Let's delve into some of the uh, deeper history and the origins of the Thornborough Henges then, Susan. Do we have any idea how old they are? We don't have any absolute dates for these henges. And when I say absolute, what I mean is, is a scientific date. We don't have any radiocarbon dates, for example, on material from the henges. And that's because They've only been excavated in very, very small portions. There were some excavations across the Henge Ditch, for example, in 1952, but they only excavated a very small section and they didn't retrieve anything that was datable from that in terms of things like antler picks, something that as archaeologists, we would normally try and radiocarbon date to work out when the ditch had been dug. So we don't have any absolute dates, but we do know generally that Henges are a late Neolithic phenomena. So when I say late Neolithic, I'm talking about something like four and a half thousand years ago. And the shape and layout of these henges is very similar to other ones in Cumbria, for example, and also across in Ireland. And we know that some of those date from the late Neolithic. So if I have to put my money on it, I would say that these are roughly four and a half thousand years old. But sadly, we don't exactly know the date that they were constructed. What about the way that they were created and how long that might have taken? Well, again, we because of the lack of excavation, we don't really have any clues as to how long these monuments might have taken to build and and what kind of different phases they might have gone through. Although I would say that the three henges are so similar to each other and so identical, it looks like the plan is executed in one event. You know, the three henges do appear to be built at a very similar time to each other, if not at the same time. 
But we know that the effort to build such monuments would have taken some considerable period. So they're digging out these enormously deep ditches. They're building up the gypsum and the chalk and the earth to make these banks. And there are a whole load of things that we don't know about yet, but probably are enclosed within the henges, such as timber structures. And so, you know, this is a project that involves many, many people and requires organisation and sort of people to motivate you and plan out what's happening. So we assume that the construction of the monuments may have taken some considerable time. But again, because we don't have the detailed archaeological evidence, we can't really answer these questions just yet. Yes. Perhaps this next question also requires archaeological evidence to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. We have spoken in previous podcasts about how Stonehenge evolved over millennia. So is it thought that perhaps Thornborough Henges were modified over time? or? Yeah, so similar to Stonehenge in a way, the actual construction of the henges might have not taken you know, perhaps a year, perhaps a couple of years. Perhaps the three henges were built over a period of 20, 50 years. But actually, it's the whole landscape that gets modified over millennia. So we've talked about these early Neolithic monuments, the Cursus monuments, which were perhaps built 500 years, 800 years beforehand, something like that. And then we've got the later monuments like the Round Barrows and these post alignments, which probably date into the Middle Bronze Age. So that's two and a half thousand years, perhaps, over which this landscape is being used as a place to build monuments, as a place to conduct ceremonies and rituals and as a place for people to gather and together. So yes, the way the space was used and the way that people interacted with the henges and moved around them changed over time. But we don't have quite the detailed kind of biography of this landscape yet that we do have, for example, in the Stonehenge landscape. Right. I think that's really fascinating because I think one of the really interesting touch points in terms of prehistoric sites for our visitors is that sense of real deep time a place being used for two and a half thousand years. And that's really tricky for us to comprehend now, you know, where buildings go from being built to demolished in half a century, for instance. So that sense of a place having a degree of importance for two and a half thousand years is is extraordinary. And I think when people return to these sites, that sense of kind of long-term use, that sense of a site being at the, the heart of a community for generation upon generation is what moves people. And even today, you have people returning to the site on the 1st of May each year for a Beltane festival, capturing some of that deep sense of spirituality that's within the site. A sense of place and a sense of purpose. Exactly. Sort of seems to live on within some of us. So archaeological excavations then, surveys, have any of these really taken place? Because obviously kind of working on a, a few theories at the moment, aren't we, Susan? Yeah, so there have been excavations at the site. So in fact, the earliest ones were undertaken in 1864 by an archaeologist called Lucas. And he excavated a number of the barrows in the area, one in particular, which is known as the Centre Hill, which is, is a mound that lies between the southern and the central henges. And he found a burial at there with a wooden coffin. And he also excavated at the Three Hills which is a a cluster of little round barrows where he found pottery and cremations and that sort of thing. So typical kind of antiquarian exploration of barrows where they were looking for objects really rather than trying to piece together the whole story. But then excavations took place in the 1950s by Nick Thomas and he excavated a couple of trenches across the ditches of the Central Henge and also recorded sections of the Cursus, which at the time were being quarried away 
through gravel quarrying. And that's how really the cursus was discovered. It had been spotted on aerial photographs, but the quarrying was already underway. So it was a rather it was a rescue excavation, really, to try and record as much as possible before it was destroyed. I should say that Thornborough Henges sits within an area that has been extensively quarried. A huge, huge aggregate um, extraction has happened in the area. And so in the early days, that's led to a loss of information, archaeological information, because kind of monuments and, and areas of landscape have been destroyed. Although in much more recent times where there's been new quarrying still being carried out slightly further afield from the monuments, that has led to developer-funded archaeological excavations, which have given us lots of information. So, for example, at the Nostfield Quarry, not far from Thornborough, excavations there have uncovered Neolithic pits and post holes and flint scatters and things that suggest to us where Neolithic people might have been living at the time that the henges were being built and, and used. So we had these excavations in the 1950s, and then there were some more rescue excavations in advance of gravel extraction relating to the cursus. And then in the 1990s, there was a major research project, which was rather grandly called the Vale of Mowbray Neolithic Landscape Project, led by Jan Harding, who's at the Newcastle University at the time. And this involved lots of geophysical surveys, field walking, topographic surveys, and also some small-scale excavations, particularly of features that they had identified through the surveys in and around the Henge monuments. So that's when, for example, these great big timber post alignments were partly excavated and dated to the Bronze Age. And they also tackled some of the outlying barrows. So there's a triple-ditched round barrow, which dates from the early Neolithic period, for example, nearby. So that was a really big landscape project, and that really forms the basis of what we know about the Thornborough Henges today. So we've still got quite a lot to learn, really. We've got a huge amount to learn. We've got so many questions. You know, what date were the henges? As you've asked, you know, how did they develop over time? What was in the middle of these henges? What structures were there? Interestingly, that centre barrow, that uh, centre hill that Lucas excavated, looking at the geophysical survey, I think that looks like it's got a Neolithic structure underneath it, perhaps. And because a lot of these surveys and research work were done sort of in the 90s, actually techniques have moved on a lot since then. And so, you know, really, we need to go back with more high tech, high resolution geophysical survey equipment, for example, and do some some new work to see what we can uncover. And And really, we do need to kind of do some new active and proactive research to answer some of these key questions we've got so that we can answer them for our visitors. Well, speaking of questions, we have plenty more. What's significant then about the alignment and orientation of these three henges? Well, as Joe was saying earlier on, the henge banks, when they were originally constructed, would have blocked out the view of the surrounding landscape, leaving only the gaps where the opposed entrances were. And it's been suggested that these were particularly aligned to frame particular events in the sky, the midwinter solstice, for example, and also potentially some risings of particular constellations. So it's been suggested that the Orion constellation would be visible through the southern entrance in particular times of the year and and be kind of aligned with those henge entrances. So there's these really interesting ideas about alignments and about how the monuments were kind of framing particular bits of the night sky or even the sunset and sunrise. Again, it's sort of something where perhaps more research needs to be done. What's really interesting about these henges, I think Joe just mentioned earlier on, is that they used gypsum, which is the local geology, which is a very white, bright stone to cover the banks. So these banks would have kind of gleamed white when they were first constructed and making them look incredibly dramatic against the kind of green landscape. 
And so it's hard not to imagine that the hinges have some relation to the sky and to the upper world in the way that they've been constructed and the way that they might have been used. Yes, even the uh, arrangement of the three henges kind of evoke Orion's belt in that constellation, don't they? It has been suggested that, and in fact, the, the excavator, Jan Harding, proposed that. I'm not so sure. Neolithic people would never have been able to get in an aeroplane or look down on the site as we do on maps or on aero photographs. And so for them, I suspect laying out the monuments was much more attuned to the local topography, to the river, to the alignments that they could see on the horizon and the skies above, rather than perhaps reflecting the picture of how we see particular stars. I mean, it's an interesting idea and it's possible, but I think I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about that. Okay. Are there any other clusters of henge monuments like the Thornborough Henges in northern Britain? There are. So there are, as I've talked about already, the sort of scatter of henges all the way down this north-south corridor in this kind of Yorkshire area. But there are others as well. So perhaps best known are the cluster of henges at Penrith. So there's Maybra Henge, King Arthur's Round Table and another little small henge there, three of them together at a confluence of some rivers. So you do get clusters. What's unusual about the Thornborough henges is that they are absolutely identical to each other. And they're this kind of form of of henge that seems to pop up in the kind of east coast of Ireland, Cumbria and here, suggesting there's kind of connections across northern Britain and the Irish Sea at this time. So I think it's very unusual to have three completely identical henges laid out so close to each other in this way. And how do these Thornborough henges also relate to the wider Vale of Mowbray of other ancient sites? So the Vale of Mowbray is sort of where the sites sit in the landscape. I think the research project that was done in the 1990s was called the Vale of Mowbray Neolithic Landscape Project because they were sort of searching and and doing research across a whole swathe of the surrounding area. And one of the interesting things that's been found is that in the Neolithic period, this seems to be in a place that people gathered a lot. So there's quite a lot of flint scatters, particularly worked flint and chert, which are the two sort of fine grain stones that people are using to make tools. So these scatters are found particularly along the river and suggest that's where people are living in sort of temporary settlements in the early Neolithic. But by the late Neolithic, which is when the henges are probably being built, the plateau where they are seems to have been very clear of everyday kind of debris and, and doesn't have so many of these stone tools, for example. So that suggests that perhaps this area of the henges is kept sort of separate and sacred and is not a place that people are occupying, but they are living slightly further afield. So, for example, in the area where the Nosterfield Quarry is now, there's some scatters there with with pits and hearths and things, which suggests that people are living a little bit further away. So the evidence suggests that people are coming to these places, coming to the henges and these settlements from quite long distances away. So there's chert that comes from the Pennines, for example, and the flint that's being used comes from the Yorkshire Wolds and the coast, the Yorkshire coast. So they're travelling with these materials probably and gathering in this location from various places to both the east and the west. So based on everything you've described so far between the two of you, do we have any working theories about what kind of gatherings might have taken place? You mentioned the winter solstice, possible celestial actions that are happening around the henges. I mean, they are places of gathering, people, places where people perhaps came to from quite long distances away, perhaps on on sort of pilgrimages. These are ritual ceremonial monuments where we can imagine that people were 
conducting activities that related to their religious beliefs and to their kind of wider worldviews. But really, in like many prehistoric monuments, we don't know exactly what people were doing here. The entrances are aligned on the midwinter solstice sunrise. So that suggests that people perhaps were gathering there at that particular time of year, that midwinter time to celebrate the sunrise. And we've perhaps talked about this on previous podcasts where, you know, as farmers and as people who were living off the land and having herds of animals and things, the turning of the year and the seasons would have been incredibly important. And it suggests that gathering at times like midwinter to make sure that the sun comes back, to make sure that the year continues to turn, perhaps that was part of their religious beliefs and the reasons that they were building these monuments and gathering here. But There are other ideas as well. You know, the white gypsum is really interesting because the whole area around Thornborough is quite susceptible to subsidence. There are quite a lot of sinkholes. Is there something there about it being kind of active geology that's quite interesting for people in prehistory? Are they associating the white of the gypsum with the underworld, with bones of the dead, with the stars? You know, you can come up with all kinds of interesting ideas about what people might have been thinking at the time. That's really interesting, isn't it? I love doing Neolithic stuff, don't you, Joe? It's it's always really tantalising. Absolutely. There's a sense of uncertainty about the detail of the rituals, for instance, but perhaps that's not the thing to focus on. I think, you know, as, as Susan has said, this site was used for about 25 centuries, which is this epic period of time. And whilst folk memory is really strong, rituals during this period would have changed the things that people were doing two and a half thousand years later are not the things that people would have potentially been doing right at the beginning. But the point of it is that in all these periods, people are gathering, you know, it's always a place of coming together. And in many instances, a sense of journeying to either to the site or through the site. And that is something that is still significant. You know, it is still a place where people can come to, people can walk through. And there's a real kind of sense of relevance to the past in that sense. But I think if we tend to get kind of hung up in kind of, well, do we know what people were actually doing? And, you know, it's very hard to even build a picture of that from the scant evidence that can be excavated. But that overarching big picture of this being a place of significance and a place of gathering actually is quite evocative, I think. I agree. Yes. If we wind the clock forward then into the present and near present, and we look at recent history, have Thornbrahenges been modified in recent times? Yes. And and in particular, the landscape around them has been hugely modified by sand and gravel extraction. So this was something that had been a traditional industry in this period. And by the sort of mid 20th century, some large areas of land around the Thornborough monuments had been excavated, including areas very close to the central and southern henges. And that's when, for example, the rescue excavations took place of the Cursus. And at the same time, people were just discovering through aerial photography and that kind of thing that there was a lot more to the site than simply the henges, that there were other features and other monuments lying under the ground. So in a way, the kind of wider landscape around the henges has been unfortunately largely destroyed but the henges themselves have remained relatively well protected. The central henge was used as a munitions dump during the Second World War, 
and a section of the Southern Henge was sadly destroyed by a bulldozer in the 1960s. So they have suffered a bit, but they are still there. And very fortunately now, the Henges have come into the guardianship of the state, which means that they belong to everybody. And it means that English Heritage are their current custodians to look after them and manage them and hopefully welcome visitors to them. Joe, you mentioned earlier that um, there's some modern celebrations that take place at Thornborough Henges. Can you give us a bit more detail about that uh, May festival that takes place? So the May festival is a festival called Beltane, which starts at noon on the 1st of May each year. And it's a coming together of people who want to celebrate the spring in their own way. So so there's a a multitude of different rituals and performances that take place there. It's incredibly free and energetic and and enjoyable and good-spirited event. And it's at the heart of the community and and sort of the wider region's celebration of Thornborough. And we imagine that this contemporary use of the space and kind of the creation and development of various kind of rituals is something that's going to go on for years and years and years. Yes, and that's a really nice thing because it connects our present with the ancient past, doesn't it? Do we know how many people would attend those modern events and where they would gather exactly? The event takes place around the Central Henge. The people who produce the Beltane Festival and the people that attend that are incredibly sensitive and respectful of the monument. So they, you know, and not climbing onto the Henge earthworks themselves. The event takes place in the centre and around the Henges. And in terms of numbers, I mean, up to hundreds of people come every year. If we look at other aspects of the recent history of Thornborough Henges, one of the key things, obviously, and the reason for this podcast is the fact that English Heritage is now beginning to look after it. So how did English Heritage acquire the site, first of all? The nature of the local geology makes the landscape around the Henges and the area within the the Vale of of Mowbray very attractive for mineral extraction, in this instance, gravel extraction. And there have been a number of gravel quarries around the Henges. And whilst the Henges have never in themselves been at risk from that quarrying because of legislation and, and, and protections in place, in the early 2000s, I think 2002, 2003, there was a, a group called the Friends of Thornborough Henges who were concerned that the fragile prehistoric landscape was at risk and they wanted to better protect and better present that landscape and put a huge amount of work into raising publicity for the Henges. And I think actually it's fair to say that the Henges weren't very well known as an important archaeological site before the Friends of Thornborough Henges really put it on a, a national stage, in a sense, with their publicity and their activities. And so since that time, the various landowners have collaborated to protect the prehistoric monuments. And the happy result of that is that now the Henges are being placed in care of the state and English heritage are looking after it whilst maintaining free access to any visitors that come. I think, you know, we will have new graphic panels that tell the story, give people the information and, and critically give people an idea of what that aerial view looks like, because that is so 
illustrative of both the size and the layout of the hinges. So I think that is absolutely key. Those graphic panels will also need to direct people to other monuments that might be either the location visible within the landscape or directions to where you can find those other uh, monuments. So that would be through mapping or what's called a toposcope, which is a way of linking in the view of the landscape that you can see around you, the panorama, with information about what might be found in in that landscape. We could also play with audio tours, and we've delivered really quite evocative audio tours at places like Maiden Castle in Dorset that are available online that actually lend themselves really well to this. And I think the other key thing is really good orientation so that people know where they can go and where they can walk through. I think all those things combined would give a very clear idea of what the hinges are and how they sit in the space. But I think there are maybe other ideas that we've not even considered yet that are about those more intangible elements, about how the space feels and about how you can connect to the space today. And for those, I think we just need to be open-minded as we start on our, our journey with these hinges. Absolutely. And I think if perhaps we did a follow-up where we met on site and described it to listeners and got all the sounds of the area, I think that would help tell the story yes. as well. And I'm sure the web team is probably working on a, a web page as we speak. That's correct, yes. Susan has been very busy drafting articles as well. So it's all there to find out what we do know so far and hopefully new research develops in the future as well. But what can people enjoy as part of a visit to the site today? How can they sort of walk in the footsteps of the ancient Britons? Well, I think you've absolutely just described it there. You know, the ability to walk through the landscape between these hinges, walk through the openings into the centre of the hinges, you absolutely know you are walking in the footsteps of the original builders and worshippers or participants. And I, I, I think that there is an element of that that is very evocative. But even if you're not concentrating on the history, even if you're thinking, well, actually, this is just a place of reflection. You know, I love being in that central henge and just being in the middle of this incredibly unspoiled natural landscape. And you can hear the air is sort of vibrating to the sound of birdsong. And you have grasshoppers in the in the long grass around you there's something very immersive about that and so it, it is all it's sort of a wonderful place to be and for those families that like short walks you know of a weekend it's a very manageable walk and involves a you know quite a variety of spaces from watching the ducks and the geese on the lakes and the Nostaville wildlife reserve or walking through the grasslands and having the space to run and having the space to just explore. It's a great afternoon out. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll profile Sir Christopher Wren, the architect behind St Paul's Cathedral, who, as we'll find out, was a man of many talents. He studied astronomy, but also mechanics and geometry. He invented a rain gauge. He invented a weather clock. So he was at the heart of the scientific culture. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>